The passage that we read this evening uh, is in many respects a remarkable passage of Scripture. Firstly, it's remarkable because so many people have heard it read. For nearly 100 years, it's been one of the readings uh, in the service of lessons and carols held each Christmas Eve at King's College, Cambridge, and then broadcast to the nation. Add to that countless other traditional carol services up and down the land, and we can well imagine that there are few passages of Scripture that have been heard by more people in this country. Secondly, though, it's remarkable in that of all the passages read at a traditional carol service, it may be the passage least appreciated by those who hear it. This is a passage which for many is simply a piece of prose to be recited at that festive season. But for others, however, it reminds us that the word became flesh, that the Lord Jesus was born at Bethlehem. And he wasn't just any baby, he was the incarnate Son of God. But there's more even to this. For these verses give us, or open the door, to a profound spiritual reality. For the beginning of John's Gospel allows us a rare glimpse of the pre-incarnate world of the Son of God. People live, don't they, for the here and now. Our world is framed by those things which we can detect with our senses. Uh, our, the things we see, the things we smell, the things we uh, taste and the sounds around us. Our view of the world is formed for the, from the experiences we accumulate. The people that we meet, the ideas that we embrace. But our world is also set against a a backdrop of the human his, of our human history. There's a foundation of uh, events laid down like strata, uh, historical personalities and, uh, and events that together underpin our understanding of the world in which we live. But the opening verse of John's Gospel takes us beyond this vast expanse of human history. Here, we're taken back to the very creation itself. For in verse 3, we read, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, the him in verse 3 is the word in verse 1. And it's self-evident from the passage, and from verse 14 in particular, the word is the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, then, we're transported back to the beginning of the world. We're taken back to the moment of creation, and we see a fundamental truth, that the Lord Jesus Christ was there, bringing all things into existence. But there's more. Having been taken back, as it were, to the dawn of time, 
Verse 1 invites us to go back further still. It was Buzz Lightyear in the film Toy Story who claimed to be able to go to infinity and beyond. But the opening verse of John's Gospel invites us to do something even more unimaginable. We're led back to the beginning of time and then we're invited to look further. We're invited to peer beyond the horizon for John takes us to a viewpoint where we can catch a glimpse of how things were before the first scintilla of time in the universe. Here in this first verse of John's Gospel, the scene is set and we are told, in the beginning. In the beginning, we're told, was the Word and the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning, Christ was, and what's more, we're told that in the beginning, Christ was with God. Well, we'll take a few minutes this evening to explore this a little further and see what we can learn from this remarkable verse. A verse that tells us that in the beginning, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, was with God. And we're doing the three headings, the relationship between Jesus and God, secondly, the joy of Jesus being with God, and then the effect of the incarnation. The relationship between Jesus and God, the joy of Jesus being with God, and then the effect of the incarnation. So let's, firstly, let's explore this relationship In order to understand this verse, we need to take a few minutes to think about the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, this isn't an easy concept to grapple with. For many key doctrines in the Christian faith, there are proof texts of of Scripture to which we can turn. There are verses which, if you like, give a quick knockout blow to establish a particular truth about Christianity. But the trouble is that Paul didn't write a letter to any of the early churches setting out a, a detailed logical explanation of the Trinity. There's no single section of scripture which clearly articulates the doctrine either in a comprehensive way, something to which we can refer There's no passage that we can pop in our pockets ready to pull out as a neat answer if someone challenges us what we mean by the Trinity. But this doesn't mean that the Bible is silent on the issue. With study and a good guide, you can clearly see the truth of the Trinity set out in the pages of Scripture. From the opening pages of the Old Testament all the way through to the new. The Trinity, then, is a difficult concept to grapple with, not because the truth of the Trinity is hidden from us. The real reason the Trinity is a difficult concept to to grapple with is because it concerns God, and we are merely his creatures. Philosophically, it's always going to be a struggle for us 
as finite human beings to try to comprehend our maker. And the Westminster Confession of Faith tells us that, among other attributes, God is immense, eternal, and incomprehensible. Perhaps it's not a surprise, then, that we struggle to get our minds around concepts that are literally out of this world. Now, people have tried to use all sorts of analogies to describe the Trinity, from three-leaved shamrocks to water being in the form of ice and liquid or steam. But all of these will fail. Because analogies that use things in the created world to try and describe a divine creator are always going to fail. God is incomprehensible. And there is no way in which we as finite creatures will ever be able to describe our God adequately. When we think about God then, we have to be careful to restrict ourselves to the truths which God has revealed to us about himself. Now the key idea of the Trinity is that there is one and only one true God. But this one God has three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Those three persons are all one God, however, and because of this, one person in the Godhead doesn't rank above another, one isn't superior to another, they are equal in their power, in their glory. But the three persons who are one God are distinguished by their personal properties and their relationships one with another. So, for example, although the Father is God and the Lord Jesus is God, they are nevertheless distinct. So, for example, within the being of God, one is the Father of the other and one is the Son of the other. And we see this truth in the passage we read earlier. For in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This verse shows us that the word, or the Lord Jesus Christ, is distinct from God the Father. We see it because we're told that Christ became flesh, but the Father did not. And yet this verse also tells us that the glory of the Son is as of the Father. This shows us that the Son and the Father are both God in the same sense. A few chapters on in John chapter 10 verse 30 Jesus declares, I and my Father are one. And again in John 12, 45, Jesus says, He who sees me sees him who sent me. Speaking of his Father. All these verses teach us that the Son shares the same divine nature as the Father and the Holy Ghost. But not only that, these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, are indeed one God, one God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. 
Now that's just by way of background, but it takes us back to our text in John chapter 1 verse 1. Although the Lord Jesus Christ became flesh at the incarnation, he didn't become God then. He was already God. In John 1 1 we have been led back not just to Bethlehem, In this verse, we have been led back not even to the beginning of time. In this verse, we are led back beyond that, as far as it's conceivable to be. And we're told, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the Word was God. Right at the beginning, we find the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, three persons, three in one God. But that's not all, for we read that in the beginning the word was with God. And this highlights that the Trinity didn't just exist. It was a relationship between Jesus and the other persons in the Godhead. And that's no surprise, is it? Because right back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, God made a proposition in the creation story. He said, let us make a man in our image. And in the same way, here at the beginning of John's Gospel, we find that the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, was with the Father and the Holy Spirit. For we're told that word was with God. There was communication between them. There was fellowship. There was an intimacy between them. There was communion between the persons of the Godhead, we're told, because in the beginning, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, was with God, with the Father and the Holy Ghost. Well, let's move on to think about the joy of Jesus being with God. Now, we can never know the mind of God At one level, we could only begin to imagine what it must have been like for Christ to be with the Father, as described here, in the beginning. Although we can only begin to imagine it, it's not pure conjecture. For the Bible gives us signposts to the immeasurable delight and happiness that would have existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There are three aspects which we can consider this evening. Firstly, we could think about the unity that existed between the three persons in the Godhead. Just pause for a minute. Consider the closest and dearest relationships that you have. It may be the relationship with your spouse, or it could be with a child, or a parent, or it may be with a sibling, or it may be with a friend. Think about the pleasure that you may experience in the company of that person. But our sin and our human frailty always intrude, don't they, into that moment into the closest and deepest of relationships, our sin intrudes. 
Who has it that hasn't thought or said something that they might have regretted at some stage? Who is it who hasn't been a bit tetchy or irritable on occasions with that other person? Our delight in the other, whether family or friend, can be affected by so many things, can't it? Tardness or a bad day at work, personal disappointments, illness, distraction by something or someone else. The list goes on, doesn't it? All these things intrude and disrupt the closest of our human relationships. But what about Jesus? What was his relationship like with the other persons in the Godhead? Unlike us, he had no sin to disrupt the relationship with his father. I referred earlier to John chapter 10 verse 30. What did Jesus say there about the relationship with his father? I and my father are one. For Christ to be with God would have been a relationship of perfect unity. An uninterrupted and unwavering experience of oneness with another. We're told that in the beginning, the Lord Jesus Christ was with God. They were in absolute agreement. Each person of the Trinity bound together with the other. Mutually embracing each other's uh, position in love and unity. Secondly, we could think about the delight that the three persons in the Godhead had in each other. Just just think for a moment, another do another thought experiment, if you like. Think about some of the greatest pleasures that you can experience in this world. Whatever it is, it'll be different for each of you. Choose in your mind something which gives you great joy. It might be the emotional escape of a play or a concert. It might be the overwhelming grandeur of a beautiful vista seen from a mountain peak. Or it could be a a precious moment with your family or with your nearest and dearest. Or it could be the exquisite pleasure of a bowl of your favourite ice cream. Whatever it is, once that particular pleasure has passed, is there not then a moment when you will be left wanting? Isn't there then room for something else to replace it? Psalm 16, verse 11, which we sang, tells us, in God's presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Perhaps you know that verse, but have you ever thought what it means? You see, there are no half measures with God. In his presence, we're told, there is fullness of joy. It's 100% pure joy. It's undiluted joy. It's unadulterated joy. 
It's completely uncontaminated with anything which will ever diminish its effect. And it's lacking absolutely nothing. Nothing can compare to the intensity and the experience of it. Not only that, but we're told that in God's presence, nothing will distract us from that joy. This is joy without, inter- uh, without interruption. And it's joy without end. It goes on and on and on for all eternity. Without growing weaker. Without lessening its effect in any way whatsoever. In the beginning... The word was with God. In the beginning, the word was in the presence of God, where there was fullness of joy. In the beginning, we're told the Lord Jesus Christ experienced that undiluted and uninterrupted joy. Why? Because he was with God. So the unity... And there was delight in that relationship. But thirdly, we see there was mutual satisfaction between the three persons in the Godhead. You know, there's a, there's a danger that we become very egocentric and we, when we think about heaven. We're tempted to think what it will be like if we are there. And perhaps that betrays a subconscious attitude that somehow or other, heaven will not be complete unless we are there with a company of redeemed saints praising God. But the scriptures do not allow us that indulgence. The psalmist in Psalm 73, verse 25, which we sang this evening, It declares to God, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. You see, the psalmist needed nothing more. There was nothing he desired apart from God. God satisfied all his yearnings. There was nothing else that he needed apart from God. And if that was true of the devout psalmist, with all his human frailties, how much more must that have been true of Christ? We're told that in the beginning, the word was with God. What more can the word have possibly wanted? The Lord Jesus Christ was not lonely and needing our company. He was with God. The Lord Jesus Christ wasn't bored and in need of entertainment. He was with God. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't need us there at all with him, for he was with God. In the beginning, he was with God, and like the psalmist, he could say, there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Like the psalmist, the Lord Jesus Christ could say that God satisfied his every need. God satisfied his every longing. God satisfied his every desire. Richard Sibbs says this. 
If God had not a communicative spreading goodness, he would have never have created the world. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost were happy in themselves and enjoyed one another before the world was. But that, the God, but that God delights to communicate and spread his goodness, there had never been a creation or a redemption. You see, the point he's making, they're totally, self, they're totally sufficient within themselves. In the beginning, Christ was with God. He was in God's presence. And that presence was such bliss that he was completely satisfied. So you see, when we read this first verse in John's Gospel, we're taken to the very beginning. And there we see the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we're shown that he, the Lord Jesus, is with God. The three persons of the Godhead glorifying each other and delighting in each other's presence. It's a relationship of complete unity, a relationship of inexpressible and undiluted joy. A relationship which was complete and lacked absolutely nothing. A relationship that was so full of love, of such intensity that we cannot begin to conceive what it meant. The Lord Jesus Christ here is sharing in the most perfect, the most complete, the most glorious relationship that could ever exist between any persons. For the three, for the Trinity, the three persons of Godhead, this is a relationship at the beginning. An eternal joy, an embrace that is ever affirming, ever praising, ever glorifying one another. But having thought about that, we need to think about the effect of the incarnation. When we read that in the beginning Christ was with God, we need to remember that what subsisted at the beginning did not continue unchanged forever. We're reminded of this in verse 14, aren't we, where we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. At that point, things changed. When Christ took on human flesh, he came to a point when he experienced things which were completely alien to the experience he had had when he was with God in the beginning. Now, there are lots of comparisons which could be made, but here are four which I found particularly helpful. Firstly, we see that before Christ took on human flesh, the word was with God in a relationship of pure delight. As we've seen, the persons of the Godhead affirmed one another in a relationship of perfect unity and oneness. And in that relationship, uh, Christ experienced nothing but the complete and unadulterated love and delight of his heavenly Father. He was the Son in whom his Father delighted. He was the Son in whom his Father was well pleased. 
But in Isaiah 53 verse 3 we read how this was to change when the Lord Jesus came to live upon the earth. We read there, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. When the Lord Jesus Christ became a man, he received not affirmation, but rejection. He experienced not love, but he was despised. When he took on human flesh, the Lord Jesus no longer experienced just the delight and joy of his Father, but he also had to embrace sorrow and grief. Secondly, we can see that before Christ took on human flesh, the Word was with God and he never experienced any physical need. The Lord Jesus Christ was never hungry or tired. He never needed shelter from the elements or a bed for the night. But all this changed when he became a man. In Matthew 8.20, Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, when he took on human flesh, he began to experience all the natural trials of life. John Favell puts it like this. Christ would not assume our innocent nature as it was in Adam before the fall while it stood in all its primitive glory and perfection. But only after sin had quite defaced, ruined and spoiled it. So you see, when Christ took on human flesh, he did not assume a perfect body like Adam had, one unaffected by sin. While Christ did not sin himself, he entered a world which bore the effects of sin. He didn't just take on human flesh. His body, like ours, experienced the curse that sin had brought into this world. In his human body, he hungered. He thirsted and he was tired. His body, like ours, sweated with exertion. And when his body was injured, he bled. When he took on human flesh, it was a body which was to be battered and bruised. It was to be a body which would ultimately die, an agonizing death on the cross at Calvary. Thirdly, we remember that before Christ became a man, he never felt physical or spiritual pain. Looking forward to the events that were to unfold upon the cross at Calvary, however, the prophet Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. As a result of becoming the God-man, Christ experienced not the affirming love and delight of his father that he had in the beginning when he was with God. But he experienced the severe justice of a holy God. This justice quite rightly executed over sinners and it was quite rightly executed on the Lord Jesus as he took our sin upon himself. When the word was with God, 
the Lord Jesus had been in the loving embrace of his father. But when he took on human flesh, he experienced a just punishment from that same father as he stood in our place. Finally, we remember that before Christ took on human flesh, he experienced only the most intimate, loving unity with his heavenly Father. The Word was with God. But at Calvary, Christ had to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the beginning, the Word was with God. In the beginning, the Lord Jesus Christ was the recipient of God's delight, basking in the love and affection of the Father. Yet on the cross, that all changed. It was the wrath of God, not the love of God, which was poured out on the Lord Jesus as he hung on the cross. Cursed not loved, is everyone who hangs on the tree. As we've seen, John chapter 1 leads us back to the beginning of time. John 1, 1, the first verse invites us to look back beyond this to the beginning. And there we see the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is with God. He is experiencing none of these things which followed from his incarnation. Friends, when we think about this, isn't it just incredible that the Lord Jesus Christ took on human flesh? As we reflect on what it meant for Christ to be with God at the beginning, isn't it just amazing that the Lord Jesus Christ ever came to this earth at all? What can we say in conclusion? John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The question we need to ask is what will we do with that verse now? If you're a Christian, then take a few minutes to reflect on this, on what we've been considering together For a moment, aside the things which trouble you in your daily life. It may be worries about uh, work or of your health. It may be loneliness. It may be the burden of singleness. It may be worries about what the future will bring. And come with John to this viewpoint that he has led us to. And consider what we have been shown. For there we see that the word was with God, but we also see what we're told in Philippians 2, that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, and taking the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men. Given that the Lord Jesus Christ had been in such a relationship of joy and delight from all eternity. Isn't it just all the more amazing 
that the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth and that he went to the cross, that endured its curse and shame. Take time to reflect on this. See what lengths the Lord Jesus Christ went out of his love for you. And then praise God for the wonder of the gospel of his grace. And if you're not a Christian here this evening, please also think on what you've heard. Isn't this the most extraordinary thing that the Lord Jesus Christ has done? Consider for a moment the immense personal price that he paid to secure salvation. It's not for nothing that in Hebrews 2.3, the author of the book says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So dear friend, please do not neglect the opportunity. It was secured at such an immense cost. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word and that you have revealed in your word things which uh, we would have no concept of as we look around the world in which we live. And we thank you, Lord, for this verse that we've looked at this evening, verse that has taken us to the very cusp of the universe and we thank you Lord that you've then invited us to go further and have a glimpse of the relationship between the Father and the Son and Father we thank you that having given us that glimpse you've also given us in your word every reason to love you, to confess our sin, to seek after you, to serve you And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to meditate on this and to reflect upon this and to appreciate all the more the uh, immense cost that was paid by your Son to redeem us for yourself. So, Father, we pray that as we go out into this coming week that we might know uh, your closeness and the assurance of your love and that our hearts might be filled with praise for who you are and the glory of the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.